Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast. I'm your host, Steve. Uh, this is episode 282 with the Rooted Leaf joining us this week. Thanks a lot for joining us. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, super excited to have Nick with us today. So it's going to be a, a fun episode, lots of nutrient talk. So I think you guys are going to like it. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to give a quick shout out. Um, be sure to, why isn't this? Oh, there we go. Uh, be sure to go check out apmjclass.com. Marty and I have a full long format aquaponic cannabis education course, over 700 lectures on there. Uh, so um, be sure to check that out if it's something that you're uh, looking for. If you're looking for you know, a, a start to finish aquaponic cannabis uh, education, we're also going to be adding a lot of soil content to that this year as well and kind of expanding the class even further. So definitely check that out. We have two live sessions each month and a ton of recorded content on there as well. Alrighty. Um, also, what was one other thing I was going to mention? I forget what it was. I'll think, oh, uh, don't forget to join us on Thursday. Um, Thursday, we have uh, Mr. Green uh, from the iGrow Chronic series of VHSs and DVDs from the late 90s and early 2000s. The guy used to dye himself green. I don't know if you guys remember him. He was the first guy that I ever learned from. He'll be our guest on Thursday, along with a whole bunch of surprise guests. Uh, for the sixth anniversary episode. Um, we're going to probably do a really long episode for that one, kind of hang out, have fun. Um, so uh, be sure to join us on Thursday as well. Alrighty, uh, thanks a lot for joining us today, Nick. Uh, why don't you tell us about yourself and uh, and what you guys do, because uh, you guys do all kinds of cool stuff. Um, I'll throw your, your links up here on the, on the screen. You can find them over at therootedleaf.com uh, or therootedleaf on Instagram. They have a ton of cool content. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Um, and on those Instagram posts, we have a lot of good educational content for people that kind of want to take a deep dive and learn a little bit more about, you know, some of the plants, whether we're talking about sage or in this case, you know, sea plants, which interestingly enough is how I think you and I met initially. Um, you know, so there's the, the basic gist of what we're doing here at Rooted Leaf Agritech is that we're manufacturing carbon-based fertilizers that are sort of based on uh, a combination of what I would perceive to be uh, old school or ancient farming techniques combined with uh, advanced carbon chemistry, sort of the latest and greatest uh, in our understandings of plant botany and biochemistry and physiology, coupled with uh, you know some of these uh, more traditional sources of you know inputs that kind of make up plants. So. Um, it's going to be interesting, I think, for us to talk about, you know, not only the plants themselves and how plant extracts can participate in the process of agriculture, uh, but maybe more specifically, what are some of the plants that have been shown to impart certain types of benefits? So, yeah. Your, your nutrients that you guys have is a really cool, interesting blend of both fermented plant inputs and uh, a little bit of more traditional mineral input. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? And then uh, we can kind of go off into those two different realms because I got a bunch of questions for you on the ferment side. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And the idea basically at large is that plants are looking to acquire as much carbon as they possibly can. It's kind of the name of the game for them. And so if you understand 
plants well enough in plant physiology, you kind of eventually come to the realization like, hey, everything plants do revolves in some way, shape or form uh, around carbon and more specifically capturing carbon, chemically reducing it, storing it, uh, reshaping it, retooling it, being able to repurpose it, put it into soluble forms, put it into, into insoluble forms. Um, and so this dance that they do with carbon chemistry, I think is unlike anything else when we're talking about certain macronutrients, for example, like nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium, calcium, magnesium, sulfur, so on and so forth. In reality, we're talking about a very small slice of what actually makes up plants. You know, if you take all of your macro and micronutrients, combine them, multiply that number by five, you still have more carbon in the plant by and far. I mean, it's such a drastic difference that to say carbon is a macronutrient is kind of an understatement. I think it actually just requires us to look a little bit more differently at what nutrients actually are and what constitutes uh, not only plant matter and biomass, but on the flip side, being able to develop a refined enough approach to look at how certain flavors of carbon result in healthier plants that are a little bit more resistant to environmental stressors. Uh, one of the biggest global problems in agriculture at large is that biotic and abiotic stressors reduce the global yields of food by around 50% every single year. I mean, that's one out of every two plates of food that could be used to feed somebody. And the idea again is that, uh, if you understand plant physiology well enough at a certain point, it comes back to like carbon, carbon, carbon. And so instead of focusing on feeding nitrogen and phosphorus, potassium, so on and so forth, uh, sort of in a, in a system that's devoid of carbon, what we're doing is we're plugging carbon in, in the exact same ways that plants and microbes in the soil and fungi in the soil uh, would do these things naturally. So there's a little bit of further qualification about what exactly constitutes carbon-based nutrients. In my perspective, one of the points at large that I hope we can get into is uh, reversing a thermodynamic equilibrium that is otherwise a physical constraint placed on plants, regardless of if you're growing with purely salt-based fertilizer or on the flip side, even if you're growing with uh, an organic input. I think that in both cases, the conversation around uh, energy transfer and maintaining a thermodynamic equilibrium needs to be examined in greater context. Um, I love that discussion, particularly as it revolves to the organic side, because it means we get to include microbes and fungi in the process of uh, plants accessing nutrients and making it easier for plants so that the thermodynamic draw is not so great on them. But on the flip side, uh, there's also some beautiful mechanics so to speak, with the salt-based approach, which is that we can look very specifically at things like nitrate reduction and sulfate reduction and really quantify like what exactly does this ask the plant to do in terms of its reduction power and spending energy to actually access those nutrients. So it's one of the topics I hope we can frame the perspective at large because I think it's also one of the things that, you know, us being a manufacturer of carbon-based fertilizers and carbon-based nutrients, uh, I think it's one of the things that sets us apart from uh, any of the other <clears throat> brands of, you know, organic or conventional, or maybe even something like a more traditional humic acid based product line or a fulvic acid based product line. There are some distinct differences. And again, that's going to come down to thermodynamic equilibrium. So looking forward to it for sure. You want to tell us a little bit about that since you seem like you're uh, uh, chomping at the bit to tell us about it. Why don't you, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that and then we'll We'll talk about ferments after that because that's something that I definitely want at some point want to get to you about because it's something I'm very passionate about 
and I've done a lot of work around lots of different types of plant isolated ferments or, you know, different specific plant ferments. And uh, I'd love to jam out on the, you know, a little bit later on, but tell us about the, the, the carbon component that you're just talking about. Yeah. You know, the idea is basically with this thermodynamic equilibrium, it's like the, the general premise is actually pretty easy to understand. Um, there's kind of two things I think we should point out first and foremost um, before we kind of launch, launch into the mechanics, because if there's no connective tissue for people to understand why this stuff is significant, maybe it's not really going to, it's going to be lost on people. It's not really going to make as much sense as I hope it will. So let me first qualify the importance of this by saying that all of the terpenes and all of the cannabinoids that your plants are capable of producing clock in between 80 and 90% carbon by weight. And so if you get test results back that indicate you have above 30% cannabinoids and above 5% terpenes on your dry flower, um, you know, that that's a really uh, high quality product right there. It's going to be very th therapeutic and it's going to be in high demand on the recreational markets too. But, you know, when you look at those lab results, what you really should do is convert all of the compounds that you see, like the THCs and the CBDs and all of the other cannabinoids, uh, convert those into carbon and take the weight. Maybe let's say somebody handed you a pound of this flower that let's just say hypothetically on average tested above 30% cannabinoids and above 5% terpenes. All of the mono and sesquiterpenes are 90%-ish carbon, and all of your cannabinoids are 80-ish percent. And so if you do the math far enough, you realize like, hey, 33% of this flour, if I give you a pound of it, one-third of that pound is just pure carbon. It's just one element, you know? And so there's something to be said there in the sense that if we can feed the plants with the correct form of carbon, maybe we can increase the throughput of some of these therapeutic compounds and some of the, you know, compounds that have pharmacological properties to them besides just cannabis. I'm talking about maybe other crops, turmeric, ginger, ashwagandha, uh, fan, you know, plants I'm a big fan of overall. Um, and so the idea basically is that if we can supplement more carbon, we're going to get better performance. Well, the, then the question is how do we supplement more carbon? So this is kind of where the conversation has to shift a little bit and we have to spend a day in the life of a plant, right? So plants basically as they take in light energy, uh, you know, that's considered work. It, it, they're taking in light energy and they're doing a certain type of work to convert that light energy into chemical energy. And for the purpose of our discussion, let's maybe refer to that chemical energy as reduction power. And think about this reduction power like a currency. When you go to the store and you want to buy yourself, let's say you have $20. You can't just buy whatever you want. You have to figure out what exactly you're going to spend that $20 on. And now imagine if you walk into the store and you say, I have a plan in place. I need to make seven sandwiches for this week. You know, your sandwich has a certain ratio of bread to meat to cheese and all this stuff. And you know that going in to the store, you have $20 to spend and you have a particular assortment of ingredients that you're looking for to uh, get in, let's say a particular ratio, right? Now, ideally you're gonna be able to go to the store and you're gonna get exactly what you want in the ratios that you want it in. Uh, in the case of plants, they're also kind of doing the same thing, except they're using their chemical currency, their reduction power, to access certain elements like carbon in the form of CO2. This is the Calvin Benson cycle. You have nitrate reduction, uh, also happens in the leaf surface. Then you have sulfate reduction, among other things. You know, there is uh, some energy that goes into regenerating ATP, for instance. And so if you are talking about phosphorus metabolism in plants, uh, you can't talk about phosphorus metabolism without understanding that it's powered by the light. The plants spend some of their chemical currency, some of that reduction power. And so, you know, by and large, the more nutrients you supplement to your plants, even if you're just supplementing CO2 in the air or nitrates in the feed water or sulfates, for instance, 
what you're asking your plants to do is spend more of their chemical currency. It takes greater and greater reduction power in order to access these nutrients. That's why in certain cases, producers that have sealed flowering rooms can raise CO2 concentrations simultaneously to raising the EC levels, generally speaking, in the rhizosphere. They can push their plants with more nitrates because they have more light intensity coming in and they have a higher CO2 load. So the plants are getting this light energy and they need to disperse that light energy down these chemical reduction pathways. Now they want to snatch CO2 out of the air and use that to chemically reduce carbon into sugars and then use those sugars as a base material to make uh, other things. You know, those other things can participate in organic acid cycles or they can be uh, used to feed microbes and things like that in the soil. Um, the point is that plants have a, a form of carbon that represents a sort of a transitory phase. You know, the plants are going to use it for one purpose or another. And the higher the sugar load is within the plants, you can say that maybe they're, you know, photosynthesizing very effectively. They're capturing a lot of carbon, you know? So part of that reduction power besides going towards CO2 goes towards assimilating nitrates and nitrates have to be fully reduced into ammoniacal forms of nitrogen. And then those have to get plugged in to uh, amino acids. And it just so happens that those amino acids actually have to uh, be joined by an organic acid residue. And so it makes sense then that for plants, the reduction of nitrogen and the reduction of carbon actually are hardwired together because if the plant decides it's gonna reduce a nitrate, it better have an organic acid on the back end to plug into that. And where does the organic acid come from? It comes from reducing the carbon. And so plants are, again, just like when you go to the store and you're paying attention to how many slices of bread you're getting for every single other ingredient in that sandwich, plants are also kind of meticulous like that. They would like for certain things to exist in particular ratios, you know? So the more carbon they can acquire, overall, the greater their, you know, spending power becomes overall their reduction power. And I'm talking about for very specific flavors of carbon. You know, think about it like the, the currencies of carbon. There are certain currencies that plants produce of carbon that are like universal currencies. They can kind of be, the, the beauty of them is that they can be used for quite literally anything the plant does. It's a fundamental uh, component of every single pathway. It's like a, at a primary layer of plant metabolism. And so if you learn how to work with those flavors of carbon, I think that you can supplement that to the plants and watch the performance overall increase. Um, but this is significantly different than uh, doing something like loading the plants with CO2 or NO3 or SO4, because all of those elements have the same common problem, which is the oxygen there. And plants don't like that oxygen there. They want to break it off. If you look at a chemical formula or molecular formula for any monoterpene, you'll find it's been fully reduced. There's only hydrogen. There's no oxygen anymore because it initially came from CO2 in the air was fully oxidized and then it got converted to being fully reduced. And redox chemistry defines basically all of life. It even defines acid-based chemistry. So things like pH, for instance, um, kind of get factored in, in conjunction with reduction and oxidation reactions overall. So the two are rather inseparable, but um, anyways, like I was saying, you know, when plants are given the uh, task of having to spend chemical currency, this is the thermodynamic equilibrium that I'm talking about for guys that are using salt-based fertilizers, they're asking their plants to spend a huge amount of that chemical reduction power. And they can afford that reduction power by shining a very high light intensity on the plants by having a lot of really good air conditioning and dehumidification to keep the VPD in the perfect spot. And then eventually figuring out the, the correct ratios for the proper mineral load. Um, and then on the flip side, uh, so, so, you know, to back up one step, you'll never solve that thermodynamic 
equation. It's always going to be an equilibrium that you just keep pushing higher and higher, and it's always going to be in the dis you know, disadvantage or dis disfavor to the plant. Um, the plant has to spend more in conjunction or in relation to how much it's going to access. And you can never really push the plants past a certain efficiency in that kind of example. On the flip side, when we're talking about something more organic based, let's say we're talking about a living soil that has diverse microbial population and fungal population, it's not that the reduction power uh, isn't there or that it's not required, it's that it gets distributed to the microbes which participate in conjunction with the plants. The plants use the reduction power, for instance, I think uh, rhizobia and legumes are a great example of something like this. Nitrogen costs a lot of chemical currency to process. It doesn't matter what kind of organism you are. Some organisms do it very efficiently. Uh, other organisms like plants have to spend approximately 25, let's say up to 30% of the overall energy that they gain throughout the day assimilating nitrogen. And it's more specifically the chemical reduction of nitrogen. And so of course, uh, there are particular microbes in the soil that have evolved over time to take that burden off of the plants. They make it easier because their tools in their toolkit happen to do, to do a slightly better job and they don't require such a large energy input. And so the plants are thinking, well, it costs you less than it costs me to process the nitrate. And you can't access carbon because you can't photosynthesize Mr. Microbe or Mr. Fungi. But I, as the plant can, and I actually do a really good job of photosynthesizing because I have these solar panels out here that happen to take light energy and suck in carbon dioxide. So why don't I make the sugars? Because it's easy for me and I'll pass that to you and you can help me with this whole nitrogen thing. Maybe take some of the sugars, feed yourself, feed your wife and kids, feed the dog, it doesn't matter, <laughs> you know, and then convert some of the nitrogen and pass it back to me, the plant. And that's kind of what happens, you know, in, in just, uh, it's a lot more specific than that. I don't think the microbes have wives and kids and dogs, but, um, you know, the point is that ultimately the reduction power is still there, but it gets transferred to other organi organisms that increase the efficiency, so to speak, of these processes. And they do a, a better job of getting the plants um, <clears throat> tighter to that equilibrium. But, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I just got something in my throat there. Um, so <clears throat> even though the microbes uh, don't replace the plants need for spending that reduction power altogether, they do increase the diversity of pathways that that reduction power gets funneled down. That's why cannabis grown in organic living soils happens to taste a lot more deep and complex and the breadth of flavors and aromas and all that stuff just increases in proportion to the diversity that the plants have to deal with in terms of microbes and fungi. There is an added layer of organic chemistry that's happening there. And it's again, to maintain this kind of uh, energy flow back and forth between uh, living systems, biological systems. Um, phosphorus is another great example with mycorrhizal fungi. You know, when plants produce sugars, really what they're looking for is to act. There's an enzyme called Rubisco. It's the most abundant enzyme on this planet. and what it's looking to do is to smash CO2 out of the air with a phosphate sugar, ribulose phosphate sugar. And that uh, is basically the premise of C3 uh, sugars in plants, or I'm sorry, C3 carbon metabolism in cannabis plants. Um, so when you don't have, uh, when your plants are a little bit deficient in phosphate, for instance, a mycorrhizal fungi can come along and actually help pass that phosphate along to the plant because it knows that the 
regeneration of that phosphate sugar is a rate limiting step for photosynthesis. And so in cases like that, it's been shown that the donation of that phosphorus by the mycorrhizal fungi actually allows for the plant to pass the sugars that it then makes back to the fungus. And so you have this sort of ability of the plant to take some phosphorus and start recycling it to produce more and more sugars, but it doesn't come for free necessarily because the mycorrhizal fungi by means of association with the plant will take some of that carbon, 20, 25% of it. Um, in other cases, besides just macro and micronutrients, uh, there are a lot of very complex activities associated with these um, microbial communities. You know, it's not just like the plant needs some nitrogen and it gets it in a one-dimensional fashion. There are very complex uh, relationships that are being mediated, uh, probably on levels that we still can't measure and are happening at rates that are really difficult for us to understand. But we know that the microbes and the fungi in the soil are producing a lot of beneficial compounds. Some of these beneficial compounds can be used to uh, thwart off disease pressures, for instance. And so really healthy soils are marked by very, very high uh, disease resistance overall, because if a pathogen gets into a soil that is full of good life for the, for the plants, that pathogen is going to get a bunch of reactive oxygen species unleashed all at once. It's going to get attacked chemically and everything about that is going to be very difficult for a pathogen to live in, you know? And so having these strong communities of beneficial microbes and fungi in the soil goes a lot further than just being able to access some nutrients that would otherwise be rate limiting for like the internal motors of plants and, and for carbon fixation processes and things like that. Uh, on the flip side, it can do things like increase water use efficiency, increase nutrient use efficiency overall, uh, increase uh, resistance to biotic and abiotic stressors. And so even without necessarily increasing the NPK load on the plants or the calcium and magnesium load on the plants, you can get better growth, better activity overall and a better distribution of elements that perhaps would you know, otherwise be unavailable in the soil. So yeah, with that said, I'll just pass it back to you so we can <laughs> see what's on your mind. Sure. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about some of the different ferment, um, for plant ferments that you do? Because that's something that I'm super passionate about and, and definitely would love to hear more about. And I think a lot of people underestimate the power of, of ferments. So there's lots of compounds um, that you can't really isolate in a compost tea or an aerated uh, solution at all. They have to be in a low oxygen environment or they break down. Um, that's one of the cool things about doing the fermentation is that you can kind of break down a lot of different compounds or break them down in a way that's much different than what you can with the traditional aerated teas and, and uh, anaerobics uh, uh, microbes. So uh, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so, you know, as far as the plant component side of things, um, you know, plants are masters of carbon chemistry. And so what better source of carbon for a carbon-based nutrient line than plants? And so we end up bringing in about four dozen species of plants. Three quarters are terrestrial, one quarter are aquatic. And these plants at large are everything from licorice fruits. We've got other plants with stems, leaves, bark, berries, pistils, uh, flowers. We've got fronds of seven different species of kelp, including red kelp, green kelp, and brown kelp. And then we've got single-celled algae like chlorella and spirulina. Um, we even use a uh, high altitude grown green tea, matcha, that I actually do uh, know the guy that sources it for us. I, he does a very, very good job. Um, but the matcha itself is something that, you know, we've seen 
fantastic results with overall as far as foliar applications go. This is one of the reasons that it works its way into our foliar spray product, Solar Rain. Um, it's just remarkable to think that plants produce, you know, hundreds of thousands of different compounds. I mean, just terpenes, there's over 70,000 known terpenes, over 10,000 known phenolic compounds, and over 100 different cannabinoids in cannabis plants. And so really the expression of what's possible to achieve in nature is really, really large and diverse. And what we're looking at, you know, more specifically is uh, the histories of some of these plants and how they've been used in traditional, not only agricultural systems, but also for traditional medicine and how they've been inter integrated and intertwined with human cultures around the world for thousands and thousands of years, you know, and the more that we learn about these plants and their potential applications, maybe not just limited in agriculture, but let's, you know, talk about beyond agriculture as well. Um, the more we realize that there's a very strong connection between humans and these plants. And it sort of stands to reason that these plants are also kind of connected with each other in certain ways that will eventually start to be able to understand with greater and greater clarity, you know, how do we use an extract of this plant maybe to help that plant? Just like right now, we're in the process as a species of learning how to, or relearning, I should say, remembering how to use plants as medicine. If you have an ailment, for instance, you might be able to utilize a certain plant extract and feel better. The, the concept extends beyond just the human nervous system. Maybe these plant extracts also have healing effects on soils that are damaged. Maybe if we're dealing with soils that have been toxified due to too many chemical conventional fertilizers, we can use some of these plant extracts because they're medicinal. And in terms of human application, they have medicinal effects. But uh, so much of what happens in the human body is kind of possible to relate to the external world, you know, not only with the species of microbes that are in the human gut, and certainly some of the bacillus species, they're also found in the soil. And so if the bacillus species respond well in the human gut, it stands to reason, I think, that bacillus species would respond well in soils in the same, you know, sort of uh, correct chemical conditions, I should say. Um, and so there's going to be further and further elucidation over the next few years um, about this type of stuff. So that's kind of the general gist is we've got so many different species of plants. They all do uh, wonderful things. And in some cases we're sourcing very, very distinct portions of those plants, like the pistils of safflower. We're getting the pistils and nothing else. We're not getting the, the petals or the leaves or anything like that. It's, it's just the pistils themselves. And one pistil can weigh about two milligrams. And, you know, you need a lot of milligrams or I'm sorry, you need a lot of pistils then to make up like a one pound or a two pound you know, batch of this stuff. So to, to extract, to learn how to extract these compounds with respect to the plants and maximize their benefits in agriculture, I think is one of the things that we're looking to achieve, certainly in the long term. Yeah, it's definitely something I think that's going to be uh, that, along with just research into microbes are kind of the two <clears throat> really breakthrough areas that you're seeing a lot of the natural farming world, you know, bleed into the uh, uh, you know, regular commercial agriculture. And, you know, and the other thing too, just to add on to what you're saying is also, you know, there's different volatile compounds and a lot of these different plants trigger different uh, immune system responses in the plants as well. So like basically like aromatherapy uh, for your plants, even that uh, can trigger increase in terpene production. And there's a lot of, um, you know, there's whole white papers specifically on just that. So um, it's, it's part of the whole chemical signaling system between plants. So uh, <laughs> I think that you know learning to min-max all this stuff is definitely something that we'll learn a lot more about uh, in the future and, and you'll be able to apply more just like you're saying. Yeah, I think people oftentimes may lose uh, appreciation of the fact that plants produce compounds that mediate relationships 
across entire kingdoms. These compounds are meant to attract pollinators that have separate evolutionary histories for billions of years. And then on the flip side, humans get attracted to certain species of plants that produce certain types of compounds. And I think that on the one hand, it's very remarkable to watch this high degree of chemical specificity, you know, because out of the hundreds of thousands of compounds that plants produce, maybe some of the ones with more profound or pronounced effects, those are a little bit more rare than they are common. You know, it's not like medicinal compounds themselves are necessarily uncommon per se, but I mean something that's truly revolutionary and truly profound, you know, Taxol, great example. Uh, all the cannabinoids, you know, when, you, when you're starting to make synthetic equivalents, doesn't really work out well. You know, synthetic THC didn't really work too well because nature does it better, you know? Um, so, you know, the idea is basically that not only the compounds that plants produce can be used to mediate these relationships across kingdoms, but also that even within their own kingdom, maybe just across different species, across different families, let's say of plants or different genuses of plants, that some of these effects can uh, be measured, let's say, be measured by uh, on uh, other types of crops too. And in some cases, you do have this sort of uh, pool of uh, substrates that's possible to transfer between plants because in a lot of ways, even though you have such a remarkably broad and diverse set of secondary metabolites, all these compounds that can be produced, they almost seem endless in nature. Uh, in reality, a lot of them get produced from very tightly conserved pathways that have been preserved over evolutionary history. And so a lot of plants actually kind of speak the same chemical language, if that makes sense. It's a very, very complex chemical language and certainly involves a lot of, uh, you, you have to kind of you know learn how to think a different way to, to perceive it as a language. But it's certainly it's true that there are substrate pools that plants can act on that would benefit other plants if they also had access to that substrate pool. I think these are some of the things like the organic acid cycles in plants. Uh, you know, certainly when we're looking at amino acids, um, like cysteine, for example, it's the, the way that plants make cysteine and the terminal reduction of sulfates leading to the biosynthesis of cysteine is something that is very, very tightly conserved because it's, it requires a lot of energy. Actually, it requires a ton of energy. And the thiol group in cysteine is so critical for all of life that even humans have the same sort of um, need for it. We just can't synthesize cysteine in our own body. So we have to consume it as a dietary source. We don't have the tools that are precise enough or sharp enough or really strong enough to be able to fully reduce sulfates into their thiol groups that actually form all of the antioxidants that humans depend on. Um, and so if you knock out the antioxidants in plants like glutathione, for example, there is no such thing as a cell that's possible. So this just goes to show you how tightly conserved and how important the reduction of sulfate into an antioxidant thiol group actually is. So in almost all plants, I, I think, you know, it's safe to say that you're going to find examples of things like this, where there's just like usually one gateway or like Rubisco is another one, you know, it's uh, the kind of the gateway for CO2. And certainly with plants, they're broken up by C3, C4 and CAM uh, metabolism, depending on how they fix that carbon. But um, you know, by and large, Rubisco is an enzyme that's been pretty tightly conserved over a very, very long period of time. Uh, and I'm of the opinion that C3 plants and when Rubisco misfires and photorespiration occurs, I think it's beautiful in the symmetry and how balanced it actually is uh, in terms of being optimized for carbon metabolism and recycling CO2 into Rubisco through uh, carbonic anhydrase, which is kind of a special enzyme we want to get into right now. But um, yeah, I forget where I was going with that. So. 
One of the other things that I noticed uh, I, is in something that I've, you know, there's lots of different ways to get it, but you also have a, a silica product. And I think silica is something that's also highly like misunderstood uh, and people don't understand like how beneficial silica is. I know in lettuce, we've seen it have increased heat resistance, reduce bolting, uh, reduce cold, increase cold resistance. So less, less problems when the plants get cold. Uh, yeah. and have a, a, crisp, a, a crisper for over a week longer in the fridge uh, and, you know, where it was still viable to eat. So, uh, and that was just lettuce, right? Not, not even counting the cannabis testing that we did. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about silica and its importance? Because it's something that I think that people really need more education on. Yeah, yeah. And I, I kind of want to take a chance to dispel any kind of myths for people. If you're sitting in front of a computer right now, uh, go to Wikipedia or just go to Google and type in orthosilicic acid. and Look at the chemical formula of orthosilicic acid. Break that out into H and count up the number of H's. Do the same thing for the oxygen. And then do the same thing for the SI, the silicon. Now, once you have that, uh, silicon dioxide is SiO2. But if you want, you can go to Google and no, that's salicylic acid. Uh, you want silicic acid, S-I-L-I-C-I-C. -I -I Salicylic acid is a derivative of the phenylpropanoid pathway. It's technically both a secondary plant metabolite and is considered a hormone for biotic and abiotic stress tolerance that interfaces with the gelsmonic acid pathway. We could talk about that one a little bit later. Or no, go to that second link, that orthosilicic acid. There you go, perfect, okay. So now on the right-hand side, underneath properties in that table, where there's that one, two, third yellow, yep, chemical formula. You see what I'm talking about right there? Yeah. Okay. So you got four hydrogens, four oxygens, and one silicon, okay? Now, if you go to Google and type in silicon dioxide, obviously it's SiO2, but we can... Verify. Suppose I gave you a single silicon dioxide compound, just, just one, SiO2. And I gave you two molecules of water. There's your SiO2, okay? Imagine I, I give you two molecules of water. So you got H2O, H2O, right? There's your two molecules of water. And you combine those with your silicon dioxide, SiO2. If you're gonna add all of them together, you can count up the numbers of hydrogen, oxygen, and silicon between orthosilicic acid and this theoretical hydrated silicon dioxide. And you realize that they're actually not different at all. They have the exact same molecular formula. So orthosilicic acid, as people refer to it, this fancy form of silicon, is nothing more than the most low molecular weight form of silicon that's absorbable by the plants. It's literally just a single silicon dioxide that has been combined with two molecules of water. This again represents the smallest possible form of silicon that can be taken up by the plants. 
plants need to take things up that are soluble in water. Water is sort of the universal solvent for them. It has to take it up. And so if you don't have water in the equation, you're going to have an awfully hard time getting your plants to take up any kind of nutrients. So think about silicon and the most fundamentally bioavailable form of silicon as just hydrated silicon dioxide. Um, the fancy term is orthosilicic acid, and these products are actually pretty expensive overall. But naturally, out there in the environment, silicic acid can exist in concentrations of up to about 50 to 100 parts per million in nature before you get this weird phenomena called spontaneous autopolycondensation. And that idea is basically um, that silicon does speciate, it does change over time. And especially as it's exposed to oxygen, for instance, uh, that's why silicon dioxide in the crust is so uh, abundant and so common because it's basically the fully oxidized version of silicon. Um, so that's kind of like the, the basic, you know, first layer premise that I want to get at. When we do talk about orthosilicic acid, just keep in mind that it's just hydrated silicon dioxide. Um, so silicon for plants is really important. Like you said, it does actually create some structure. It helps plants resist uh, stress, both biotic and abiotic stress. The best way to kind of perceive these effects is to understand that silicon exists kind of directly below carbon on the periodic table of elements. And so actually, can you pull up a tab real quick and look at the periodic table of elements? Just so that we can have a slightly better reference to what it is we're looking at when we actually um, talk about silicon. You're gonna notice it's an element that's directly underneath carbon. And the reason that this is important is because the two share some kind of properties. Silicon is like a really large version of Carbon is kind of like big and fat. It doesn't quite, yeah, there you go. So carbon is number six there. Uh, and then silicon is number 14. So again, carbon and silicon do share some properties. They're kind of in the same row. And so you can think about, I don't want to get too far into it, um, but the easiest way for us to describe some of the benefits we see associated with silicon is to think about silicon like kind of a large fat version of carbon it's not really small enough to actually form the same kinds of bonds, which is why when carbon is in the mix, there is a much larger expression of possible compounds. But this is not to say that silicon is unimportant. Uh, on the contrary, actually, there's two distinct features to silicon when it comes to plant biochemistry. The first is what I call the invisible effect. And it's that silicon can participate and kind of take the place of um, uh, where carbon may otherwise be deposited. So if we're talking about cell walls, the integrity of the cell wall can be made stronger by reinforcing it with more carbon in the form of pectic acid residues that are complexed with calcium, for instance, then we get really nice thick cell walls. But if the plants have access to silicon, the invisible benefit is that there's no energy loss or expenditure associated with stuffing the cell walls full of carbon. The silicon can come up passively and plants can say, great, here's basically a bigger, fatter, larger version of carbon. It actually takes up a pinch more space and it's a little bit more solid overall. It has better structural stability. This is why, uh, you know, like gla uh, glass roofs on the top of greenhouses, you know, made out of glass, it's silicon. Same thing for the plants. You know, they can basically turn silicon, they can speciate it into something that effectively allows them to create glass walls, so to speak. And these compounds can then better reinforce plants 
to resist against lodging, for example, which is when they wilt under intense heat stress or desiccation, the silicon will physically prevent that from happening. Um, the invisible effect though is that the plants actually saved energy because they didn't have to lose it by plugging carbon into the cell wall. This is where some of the actual energy uh, expenditure is seen and realized. When you apply silicon on your plants, you may notice they have this burst of energy going down metabolic pathways that give rise to biotic and abiotic stress tolerance. Like they produce more aromatic compounds, for instance, or they may produce more antioxidants. Well, the real question is where did that come from? The answer is not one dimensional to say that it came from silica so much as by using silicon, the plants were able to save that energy and divert it down a different pathway. They have more reduction power to go to the store and buy whatever they need to buy to make whatever kind of defensive compound they need to make. Uh, this is one of the distinct features of silicon that I think not other elements, no other element can really um, come close to, you know, um, that silicon and carbon in some cases by the plants are interchangeable for the purpose of saving the plant a lot of energy where it would otherwise have to work and spend time processing that carbon and diverting a huge chunk of its energy stream. I mean, up to 20 to 25% of all of the energy that plants get in, in the form of reduced carbon can be fluxed down this pathway that produces, you know, super thick structures like lignin, for example, that phenylpropanoid pathway. Um, so plant for plants, it's a very, very serious equation. If you can, if you can save them from having to spend 20% of their energy, you bet you're going to get better performance. You're going to get on the other end of the equation, you're going to get, um, you know, better terpene profiles, for example, or better antioxidant compounds produced by the plants. Um, silicon also interfaces with the DNA of plants. It actually has been shown to help upregulate certain transcription factors that result, ironically enough, in silicon metabolism. So when the plants perceive silicon, the silicon has this effect on them to say, hey, it's time to start metabolizing some silicon. And so you find certain things start to get upregulated when you have plants that are being fed uh, the appropriate amounts of silicon, balanced amounts of silicon, you know, relative to everything else. Um, and you find it more in like turkey bits, I think, than you would in cannabis, just as like an extreme example, you know, but if you feed cucumbers and zucchini uh, appropriate levels of silicon, the, uh, the trichomes that they make are lethal to caterpillars. You will never have to spray a pesticide or any kind of, you know, fungicide on, on your crops ever again. Like I, I would feel bad for the caterpillar or for the slug that tried to crawl up the, the uh, cucumbers that I was growing last year, because I remember going through the foliage and I poked myself and it was like one of the most painful things I've felt in a while. I was like, man, that's really, and then I started bleeding too. And I was like, dude, that's crazy that the plants naturally have these abilities to accumulate certain species of plants will accumulate large amounts of sil silicon and secrete them in like uh, phytolithic deposits, for example, in cannabis plants, we have cystolithic deposits or non-glandular trichomes. Same thing within tea, Camellia sinensis produces a lot of these non-glandular trichomes. It's what gives tea it's uh, particular hairiness or it's fuzziness so if you drink like a silver needles tea or something like that the actual fur that's on that is a non-glandular trichome uh, but anyways the phytoliths themselves um, the silicon bearing uh, structures can actually themselves be used to defend against predators too so here's an example again of silicon interfacing with the dna of a plant to upregulate defense related genes and then silicon comes along and says i will be your substrate will activate the switch and then I will go and be the fuel that's burned. So it's a remarkable element in the sense that it has this kind of like direct effect on the DNA, but also a very invisible effect in terms of 
being able to free up about 20, up to 20%, I'm not saying that's true in all cases, but up to 20% of energy that plants may otherwise have to spend. That's a freaking huge amount, man. That's huge for plants. So getting smart about silicon nutrition is definitely a game changer if you've never taken it seriously before. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, oh, you mentioned something there right at the end and then I lost, I lost what you had thought about, but um, uh, silica is also super important for the formation of those trichome stocks. You know, there's a lot of silica in those trichome stocks as well, which people kind of um, forget about for some weird reason. Um, uh, uh, calcium is another one that people don't understand, especially because of the calcium chelation. You want to tell us a little bit about that? It's another one of the things that you guys have. Yeah, yeah, the calcium chelate that we make, I think, is pretty special. Um, definitely one of those things where it's like very interesting. So I, I think I should first start off um, telling a story about Costa Rica and an orange juice producer in the 1900s. I'm going to try to make this quick because I, I like to tell the story quite a bit. But you don't have to be quick. Good stories are good stories. I, you know, it's, it's such a such an inspiring example of what's possible to achieve um, because basically the gist is an orange juice producer back in the early 1990s dumped about 12,000 tons of orange peel onto a barren piece of land that was owned by the government and it was part of a rainforest that um, the seven and a half acre plot of land happened to be fairly degraded and so there wasn't really much going on. Uh, it had low organic matter, couldn't really support complex life. Uh, so, you know, the orange juice producer basically said, hey, let's see if we can, if we can experiment. Um, one of their competitors found out sued saying that, you know, it was just uh, uh, sanctioned dumping or something like that. And, and they got, you know, they ultimately won the court case. And so the project site had to be shut down uh, about 15 or 20 years later. One of the main visionaries behind that idea was working as a professor at Princeton. Um, and he had a graduate student that was in his class and he wanted to basically study something like along those lines about reforestation and sustainable regeneration of degraded rainforest land and what are some of the best ways to do it. At least that's what I recall from memory. So professor ended up suggesting to the student, hey, why don't you go to Costa Rica and make the site the, you know, the, the focus of your study. And so the student says, great, I'm going to go to Costa Rica. Um, student arrives to the barren piece of land and he can't really find it. There was a seven foot wide yellow sign that was marking the site when it was first established. Uh, and so him and a team of researchers basically hacked through a super thick overgrown jungle that was totally dense, covered in vegetation and canopy. They found a fig tree that had a 15 foot diameter trunk. And of course their minds were blown. They were like, but this is freaking crazy. But you know, ultimately after about two weeks, the question remained, where is the barren piece of land? And all of a sudden it just kind of hit them that the barren piece of land was not barren anymore. That it was actually the rainforest that they were hacking their way through. And there was a quote from the, uh, from the main guy that was doing the research and he said something to the effect of as soon as he picked his job off the floor because he couldn't believe this barren piece of land transformed into a rainforest in less than two decades they began doing research for the next three years and this research for about three years ultimately determined that 12,000 tons of orange peel quite literally turned into a rainforest that had something like six times the species uh diversity, three times the species density. Overall, they took measurements of how much light got penetrated uh, through the canopy and made its way down in, into the floor, which was significantly lower. 
the the average leaf size for all of the trees that were possible to compare, you know, from the orange peel treated plot to the native rainforest around it. All of the trees in, in the orange peel plot had much larger surface areas overall, and they were a lot more efficient at photosynthesis. Uh, crazy amount of stuff that they had determined overall, and including that 15 foot uh, diameter fig tree, you know, the, the trunk itself was 15 feet in diameter. And that's remarkable to think that it grew approximately just on average at the rate of one foot every single year. And that was because there was a compound inside of the orange peels that accelerated a reforestation process and it did not require complex chemistry. It did not require any kind of uh, agro-industrial processing whatsoever. It was, you know, some kind of magic sauce inside of these orange peels that just as the orange peels degraded, they kind of, for lack of a better phrase, they exploded, you know, but the inverse of a bomb kind of explosion, you know, explosives will reduce matter to a very simple state. You know, you go kind of backwards in com complexity. Um, the orange peels gave rise to complexity very, very fast, faster than it should have been possible to achieve under normal circumstances. And especially in reference to the fact that we're talking about uh, rainforest in Costa Rica here, like these are probably the neighboring plots of land are you know, probably pretty productive when compared to other places in the world. So, you know, again, to, to kind of think that 12,000 tons of orange peel can literally grow a rainforest that is more diverse and more complex than any other rainforest around it with no supplemental fertilizer or anything like that. I mean, when was the last time 12,000 tons of NPK salts ever did that, right? Never going to happen. Rainforests don't grow that way. So that kind of story, I think, is the base for the calcium chelate that we make. It's an orange peel derived chelate. And the, the idea basically is that we're putting calcium in a very low molecular weight form, less than 10 carbon atoms. And this chelate itself actually participates in terpene and cannabinoid biosynthesis pathways. Um, it's kind of a fundamental precursor as far as like substrates and building blocks go. If your plants don't have this building block, they're not going to be able to make their little molecular sandwich. Um, and so they're always pulling carbon out of the air to replenish the pool of available bread that they have to make the sandwich, right? We're supplementing the bread in conjunction with calcium, which happens to be a very ubiquitous pathway in plants. Um, and I, you know, I think part of it, going back to the thermodynamic equilibrium part, part of this just comes down to what plants naturally have to deal with as far as what their physical constraints are in reality. You know, if you open up a can of soda on a hot summer day, all the CO2 wants to leave. CO2 doesn't want to stay soluble in water on a hot day. And so this is the issue plants have to overcome. How do I scrub CO2 out of there and put it into a form where it's soluble, where even on a hot sunny day, it's not gonna leave you know, the biological system. So plants convert into sugars. Sugars are obviously a lot more soluble in the water, you know, and they can retain that solubility. And so plants are always kind of trying to convert and store their pools of carbon and move it around. So uh, this is really important when it comes to certain species of carbon or flavors of carbon participating in uh, charge balance in plants. Like if we're looking at potassium and malic acid, for example, or if we're looking at, you know, the balance of citric acid and how it feeds amino acid biosynthesis with the organic acid skeleton and how that gets plugged in with, with nitrate reductase activity, basically. So we have these pools of carbon that if you can replenish them, they happen to do phenomenal things for plants, but they can also be used to carry minerals that plants depend on to maintain the sort of charge balance and metabolic uh, state of proficiency, you know, in the most ideal state. Um, put it this way, calcium sulfate, if you put calcium sulfate in water, calcium sulfate will, will release 2.6 grams of calcium per gallon of feed water. And in certain cases that may not be enough 
to satisfy the nutritional needs of plants. Certain plants like to eat a lot of calcium. And so you want a form of calcium that is gonna be highly soluble for the plants. So in our case, the calcium chelates we're making can release over 350 grams of calcium per gallon of feed water. That's three quarters of a pound of elemental calcium being delivered you know, to the transpiration stream of the plants. This is huge, this is significant. That means if you fed your plants you know, calcium sulfate versus our calcium chelate, you'd be getting 150 times more calcium to your plants relative to the calcium sulfate. And in certain cases, when we're talking about disease resistance, we wanna be able to load those plants up. You know, Lettuce is a big accumulator of calcium, same thing with cannabis. If we can find ways to effectively lower the amount of energy that plants need and increase the solubility of these minerals to deliver them in a charge balanced format so that the plants don't have to throw themselves out of whack, then we're gonna ultimately help these plants grow. That's what I think being a true steward to these plants is you do some of the heavy lifting for them. You don't push them one way or push them the other way to then go and do other types of work, all of it being excessive. We have the, the sort of the tools, we have the inspiration from nature. We have the ability to make compounds that plants would otherwise make themselves. They would work during the day to accumulate the reduction power to then go to the store and buy these things. And then maybe in some cases with the carbon, they're assimilating and, and shaping certain forms of carbon so that they can more readily access things like phosphorus in the soil. So when we look at phosphorus starved plants, we notice like most plants will increase the exportation of citric acid. Sometimes that funnel from the Krebs cycle will divert 20 to 25% of the carbon skeletons down into phloem tissue where it gets loaded and transported to the roots and secreted from the roots because as it turns out, citric acid, uh, due to its particular uh, nature, it will, will help displace adsorbed phosphates from the soil. And so plants have understood over time that they can produce compounds like flavors of carbon, organic acids more specifically, to help in the process of nutrient acquisition overall. And so it stands to reason that if these primary pools get expanded, that the plants get more reduction power, they get free money in their bank account. You know, just like you go to work and let's say you pull in $500 a day. Imagine if somebody came and said, you know, here's an extra four or five times that every single day, you still have to work for what you got. But the point is that on the back end for when you have a stressful day and when you need to deal with one of those stressors that you as a plant have the additional reduction power generated to then form a better response against that stressor. And this is how we ultimately help crops deal with adverse environmental stressors and challenges is we don't necessarily, you know, remove that stress or that challenge, but we certainly remove the amount of energy that the plants would spend forming a response, which is oftentimes what taxes them so greatly. And if we can do a little bit of that work for them, provide them with something that they would otherwise spend time and energy producing, we can most certainly improve nutrient density. If we're talking about things like tomatoes or calcium, lettuce, for instance, and we can improve the biosynthesis of secondary metabolites. Um, Calcium is a phenomenally important element, I think, because a lot of people consider it to be uh, immobile in the sense that when the plants, you know, by and large, you can't, when we're talking about phloem transport calcium, I don't think there's been some, I'm a little bit on the fence, but, you know, there's more a conversation about apoplastic and symplastic transport than anything else. But, uh, you know, I'm of the opinion that calcium, regardless of how you look at it as mobile versus immobile, the one thing that's true about calcium is that it moves in plants like neurons fire in the human brain. In other words, there are very, very powerful messages that get spread through calcium waves in plants. And as calcium moves from cell to cell, it activates these processes that end up inducing whole plant responses. And so if you don't have this flow of calcium happening in the plant in these calcium waves, 
just like you don't have neurons firing off your brain and propagating uh, information, that information is encrypted in plants. Researchers that have been studying calcium waves for 50 or 60 years consider it to be the holy grail to finally decrypt what these cryptic signals actually mean in plants. How exactly does the spatial and temporal flow of calcium in these waves translate to things like control of circadian rhythm, for instance, sugar production, uh, defense, you know, resistance, things of that nature. It's such a, such a remarkably uh, advanced topic. You know, it's so much more detail to it than just saying calcium is mobile or calcium is immobile. It's like, mm, calcium kind of works like neurons do in the human brain. So there's a striking resemblance, interestingly enough. So. Yeah, I mean, even in the Venus flytrap, it's the calcium pathway that triggers it to make it snap shut, you know? And so there's all kinds of crazy stuff with plants that, that there was a really cool thing on um, uh, Green Planet. Um, if you guys are either have a VPN, VPN into the UK, or um, use one of your favorite uh, um, websites to, to view it, I don't think it's out in the US yet, but it's called The Green Planet of David Attenborough. And they have a whole episode on some of the parasitic plants that like connect like five or six or eight different plants together and then, then use their signaling pathways. So if, if the vine has like some, is tapped into that plant's um, xylem and phloem, uh, it can actually detect if there's an insect attack on that and then send that anti-herbivory hormone through that, through itself and into the other plants that it's parasitizing. So it act basically has like all eight plants as like a master immune system that it's constantly trading across. And it's like, we don't need, we don't understand so much what's going on in the port. Like everything's so connected, even on like a genetic level, hormonal level. It's so nuts. Um, I don't know, just kind of blew me away. I never realized that some of these parasites were actually like overall benefiting the area uh, and, and maintaining the root systems of those plants, but not necessarily like all the foliage, you know, they're sacrificing a small amount of it in order to get that immune boosting capacity. And that's why the plants tolerate them. And it was just, yeah such an interesting, you know, thing to even think about. And it goes back to what you're just talking about, about all the different chemical signaling that we're even just beginning to learn about. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. There's a, you know, more and more research being done now into how plants actually mediate some of these relationships. And I, uh, I know that in certain cases there are plant pathogens that under the right circumstances and propagated far enough into their existence that the pathogen tendency is kind of worked out of them, so to speak. And part of it has to do with how plants can naturally, like they can coexist with uh, root rot fusarium, you know, or botrytis or something like that without actually the botrytis or the fusarium being able to produce anything that, you know, degrades the plant. But how exactly the mechanics of this, uh, you know, it takes time for people to understand because these things are like so nuanced and so detailed. But, you know, ultimately what it comes down to, to, to a certain extent is that plants are, masters of carbon chemistry and when they use the energy of the light to generate certain kinds of chemical energy that chemical energy then is a stored form you could you could consider it to be it's almost like stored light energy you know so the the ability of plants to shuffle between these reduced and oxidized states creates this redox network within the cells and in certain cases that redox potential once it reaches a certain threshold the plants can produce reactive oxygen species like hydrogen peroxide at their will, you know, it does tap on, it does create a draw on that redox state. Obviously they need to keep maintain that charge balance, but part of that large amount of potential energy that they have stored up can be used actually as kind of like a threat to the microbes that are present inside of 
the root meristematic tissue. You know, as the microbes work their way in, if the plant is sufficiently charged up and juiced up, it's got enough ability to make those reactive oxygen species. Um, those microbes get their cell walls blown up. There's very, very little that a small microbe can do to a massive plant that is just full of the equivalent of nuclear weaponry. You know, uh, oxidizing anything within microbes or fungi is a really, really, really good way to kill them, which is specifically why microbes and fungi don't produce aerial parts to capture light energy. You know, the mushroom, the fruiting bodies of mushrooms are a little bit different. Um, I don't want to speak too heavily about that, but by and large, when we're talking about microbes and fungi, we're really referring to organisms that exist underground and sort of don't experience the harmful radiative effects of the energy of the sun coming in, in conjunction with the high oxygen concentration in this uh, atmosphere. You know, the combination of light in the presence of oxygen can induce reactive oxygen species and the formation of them. These things can certainly, in, in, you know, if you've ever shined light that was too intense on your plants, you know what I'm talking about, it can burn the plants. Um, and so, you know, plants uh, have the ability to buffer this out a, a lot better than microbes and fungi do. And in certain cases, that's, that's what they use to their advantage. If the plant is in a state of optimum health, for instance, um, it's going to be very well suited to deal with pathogens, whether it conditions them actively uh, over the course of a couple of generations, like I think is required for the example I gave earlier, or even on the flip side, if it just accumulates a large reactive oxygen species burst and produces a ton of hydrogen peroxide to attack any kind of powdery mildew spores that are trying to come in across the leaf surface. Um, plants definitely have the ability to generate these fluxes really, really fast, and uh, the effects can be absolutely lethal, you know, to the wrong species of microbe. And again, when the plants are charged up enough, they have so much more stored energy inside of them and the potential to funnel that down a detrimental pathway to a harmful microbe is something that's very, very real. Um, but I also think that conventional fertilizer programs in some cases, they tax the plants so much of that potential energy store that the redox state starts to change. And this is what I'm referring to by that equal equilibrium, the thermodynamic equilibrium, you know, it's offset, it's not in favor of the plants. You're always asking them, you know, yeah, they get a million dollars a day, but you're asking them to spend 999,999. And if they don't, they're going to get burned. You know, if you feed your plants a lot of nitrates, a very excess amount of nitrates, and you decide, oh, I'm going to turn the lights to 50%, and I'm going to kill the airflow, and I'm going to turn the CO2 down to 400 ppm, you're going to fry your plants for sure. You know, but on the flip side, if you feed them a very high fertilizer load, and you say, oh, crap, that was a little stronger than what I wanted to feed them, that's okay. Turn up the light intensity a little bit, turn up the CO2, make sure you got good airflow, and your plants will not burn because that thermodynamic equilibrium is maintained. They will they will balance themselves out. You have not thrown them out of whack, you know? So it's basically the equivalent of, you know, being able to spin your tires um, without necessarily going anywhere, but it's, it's better than to have all of this energy work its way into the plant and not go anywhere, ultimately leading to oxidative stress and damage to the plants. You know, you want the, the charge balance to maintain equal for the plants. That was a, a really great breakdown on calcium. Um, uh, what about molybdenum? That's something that we often talk about for bringing out anthocyanin production and, and especially processing extra nitrogen. It's used for breaking down that nitrate back to uh, ammonia and aquaponics. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Because that's another one that people don't really um, uh, often uh, have a good understanding of. Yeah, I mean, molybdenum is a cofactor is involved, you know, in a lot of these pathways, like you said. Um, uh, 
you know, manganese is, is perhaps another good one. There are certain elements that are maybe not required in very large quantities, um, but they do nevertheless participate in fundamental processes that are required for plants to actually take a certain type of nutrient like nitrates, for example, and take it through a series of steps. That series of steps oftentimes um, changing the oxidation state of an element. And when we're talking about elements that have a large span of possible oxidation states, really what we're looking to do is arm the plants with elements that can help cycle through and shuffle through these various oxidation states um, with a great degree of efficiency. And so when we're looking at some of these you know, trace elements, they're, they're cofactors for certain reactions to happen such that the plants don't have to spend as much energy. Um, I, you know, I think I kind of gave, led to that example earlier with sulfur. You know, sulfur is possible to exist in so many different oxidation states. Uh, and that fully reduced form of sulfur, in reality, that thiol group goes between being oxidized and reduced basically at the speed of light. Let's say it's so fast, it shuffles between these two states so fast that plants can balance out the energy of the light that's coming in, in real time, you know? And for certain other cases like manganese, is a cofactor of oxygen evolution or like the water splitting phenomena. Uh, these cofactors have to be able to shuffle through these oxidation states really rapidly too, to kind of keep up with the demand that's being placed on them, which is why you have these polyprotic compounds like molybdenum that has multiple charges on it, basically it can hold multiple charges. So it allows the plants to, to cycle through oxidation states really rapidly and get past what is otherwise an energy intensive and energy uh, inefficient type of process. Um, in some cases, the antioxidant potentials themselves have to be there in order for certain things to happen. Like when magnesium is inserted into chlorophyll, for instance, that is a very energy intensive process and the thermodynamics of it uh, are not really in favor of the plant. And so it requires the thiol group in order to allow the magnesium to fully become chelated and become complexed. And with respect to how the charge balances you know, dissipated in the plant as the magnesium gets closer and closer to that final ligand being formed and uh, insertion being complete. Um, you know, it's something that can, because it happens so fast and it requires a lot of energy if it goes sideways on you, um, it costs a lot of energy for the plant. And then it can also produce, uh, you don't want that energy being dispersed randomly into the system um, because it can do some damage. So yeah, yeah, I think those, those trace elements are very important for some of those reduction and oxidation pathways. Is there any other uh, things that you think are commonly misunderstood or poorly explained traditionally as far as nutrients? You seem to have a, a really good a, a, a good way of explaining a lot of these more different complicated um, uh, processes. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, for me, it always comes back to carbon and how plants are trying to capture carbon. That, that's where all the connective tissue is for me. Um, you know, I, I like to give the example of nitrogen deficiencies in plants. It's very easy to see a nitrogen deficiency because your plants turn yellow. And it's very easy to see that deficiency is corrected when you apply more nitrogen and you see the leaves green back up. And so people can say, well, what is that yellow color? What's it coming from? Well, obviously chlorophyll, you know, biosynthesis is limited. And a lot of times people would say that nitrogen, you know, chlorophyll deficiencies are an indication of a nitrogen deficiency. But the interesting part there is that chlorophyll only has four nitrogen atoms and it has 55 carbon atoms. And so in reality, if you're deficient in chlorophyll, 
you're way more you're creating a massive carbon deficiency in the plants, uh, way more than a nitrogen deficiency. And to kind of piggyback off that too, it's also a little bit ironic how if you give your plants nitrogen, they end up producing something that is used to capture carbon or to power the process of carbon fixation. You know, there's a lot of nitrogen that's stored in the form of chlorophyll, 60 to 70, maybe 80% in some cases. The remainder by and large could be Rubisco. It's the most abundant protein on earth. Uh, I'm sorry, it's the most abundant uh, enzyme on earth. So, you know, it's interesting, all these elements that we give the plants, magnesium, nitrogen, phosphorus, the plant just says, oh, great, I can use this to capture more carbon. You know, I'm going to take the phosphate, make a carbon and sugar out of it. I'm going to take the nitrogen, use that to make a pigment that will give me the light energy that I need to power the Calvin-Benson cycle, you know, and so on and so forth. So uh, there are a couple of examples that are, you know, really, really interesting and fascinating. I think from my perspective, cysteine as an amino acid is really perplexing. It's a beautiful, beautiful compound in nature because it represents the terminal reduction of nitrogen, sulfur, and carbon. And plants have to have all three of those hardwired in on the back end to be able to perceive how to make even a single cysteine molecule because all of those forms of the elements typically are fully oxidized in nature and the plant has to deal with the same problem. And how do I spend my chemical currencies, you know? And so the plants have to have all of the stuff figured out on the back end. Everything is hardwired. You know, everything is informed and connected so that when they make the decision to take that sulfate and to reduce it into a thiol group that they know they've already got a reduced amine and they've already got the reduced organic acid or the reduced carbon in the form of the organic acid. So remarkable degree of sophistication and intelligence. And like I said, humans actually don't have the biosynthetic pathway to make cysteine. That's how beautiful and complex of a molecule it is. We depend on nature around us. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have the tools to do it ourselves. So. Um, you have another uh, thing called root anchor and you have quite a few different plants on that one. Uh, tell us about that product and about, you know, root growth and, and what your and people need to really address when they go about that. Yeah. Root anchor, I think is one of my favorite products um, just because the, the, the uh, God, it's such, it's such a powerful effect overall in the soils. I mean, it's one of those things where, I think we're still learning about how to talk about it. As we move forward in time, we kind of learn more and more about what actually is inside of this product and how it works. Um, the basic premise is that root anchor is our sea plant and humic acid combo. We use uh, unoxidized humic. We actually, the parent material is from bioag. It's their full humics. Um, and then what we're doing is extracting, we're infusing on a molecular level, those unoxidized residues, those functional groups, we're infusing them with uh, extracts of our sea plant complex. And that sea plant complex has red kelp like dulse. We have green kelp like sea lettuce. And then we have standard brown kelp flavors like rockweed uh, and some of the more usual suspects. We're also using species of kelp like sugar kelp. Um, we're using Irish moss. We've got bladder rack in the mix. So these are a variety of different species. All of them produce different compounds. And then in conjunction with that, we also have single-celled algae. We have chlorella and we have spirulina. Um, these are, all of these are food grade. I want to be very clear that we're sourcing stuff that's intended. It's USDA certified organic intended for human consumption. So we get all radioactive isotopes measured and we get all heavy metals analyzed before we can even buy anything. When we use these sea plants to make the extracts, 
they are such a high quality and high grade that there are no detectable heavy metals that will ever work their way through. And there are no radioactive isotopes because they're food grade, they're intended for human consumption. We're not using technical grade bottom of the barrel kelp that is a tenth of the price, um, especially when it comes to some of the more expensive flavors of the seed plants that we're working with. But you know, the reason for that is very specific that when we're looking at certain species of kelp, like sea lettuce is a really good one. It's the one that's in a root anchor, Ulva lactuca. It produces these sulfated polysaccharides that are kind of unique. They're called olvins. And uh, the, the name of the genus is Ulva. So of course the olvins that it produces are a reflection of its genus name. And these sulfated polysaccharides uh, do a good job of delivering you know, sulfates in a sugar bound form to the plants. So they retain a high degree of uh, biological activity. But also there's something about uh, the types of sugars found in kelp that actually do a little bit more than just provide you know, sugar as a substrate, quote unquote. What they're actually doing is they're stimulating defense responses in plants. And so there's a relationship between the type of sugar that's produced or the structure of your polysaccharide, let's say, uh, and the type of effect that it's going to elicit. You know, certain types of sugars like laminarins, for instance, those have known chelation properties with calcium. You know, mannitol is another one, actually. Mannitol produced by sugar kelp, it's a sugar alcohol. It does chelate in complex calcium. So if you know what you're doing and you know how to work with certain types of crops, you realize like, hey, I'm gonna take that kelp that's rich in mannitol because this crop right here needs a lot of calcium. So as I feed it calcium, I'm gonna feed it the extract of this kelp because I know that's gonna make the calcium more available to the plant. And what we're finding is that it's not just a combination of these two resulting in positive you know, calcium uptake by the plants and the reinforcement of those pathways, but also that there's something greater than that happening, that there's something else going on that's present inside of the sea plants. It's sort of above and beyond just the nutritional or even the chelation type of effect. Um, so, you know, there was a study done by Virginia Polytech Institute, I, I want to say probably close to 15-ish years ago. Uh, and they had basically determined that, you know, something along the lines of five-part humics and two-part sea plants is like the sweet spot or the magic sauce. Um, and I could have those ratios backwards. I kind of forget right now. But, you know, for me, it's very important to understand, like, what is the uh, what is the, not all humic is created the same, you know, what, what is the source? What's the parent material? What are the functional groups that we're looking at? What's the distribution of these aliphatic and aromatic uh, functional groups? And in some cases, do we have uh, non-functional groups? Do we have fully oxidized uh, compounds that don't really participate in biological processes, but can still be used to condition soils physically and to allow them to have better structure overall? These are the types of things that you know, I think about too. And then on the flip side, where was the kelp harvested? Was it harvested in the spring or the winter? These make big differences on the overall sort of mineral load and also on the sugar distribution and profile. Um, you got to look and understand that as things change in nature, so too to do the profile of some of these seed plants and some of the compounds. So you want specific types of things to come in in order to be able to say, right, this is our, you know, five to two ratio. Um, however, that being said, the general premise that when humic acid is combined with seed plants, it creates a very positive dynamic. There's a synergy there that actually results in some like turbocharged effect, right? To piggyback off of that, it's even greater when you start combining single-celled algae like spirulina and chlorella in the mix. That's where I think you get rocket fuel in the mix. When you combine humic acid with the extracts of single-celled algae like we're doing, all these methylated amino acids get worked into the functional groups and they get released to the plants, they get metabolized by the fungi and the microbes. And, and what we see is uh, this profound effect, to say the least, on 
soil biology and soil chemistry. Um, I think it's kind of safe to say that root anchor is like liquid biochar for the soil, you know, but it's a very complex product too. It, it arguably is the most difficult one to make and it has more seed plants than it has got a very high concentration of seed plants, not only the number of species, but the overall concentration of those active substances that are in there. Um, I also want to mention too, besides just the humic and the seed plant, uh, we also have licorice root. And for those of you who are familiar with yucca, yucca produces saponins and those saponins more specifically are tricyclic triterpenoid glycosides. Licorice roots also produce saponins, but they have two extra rings. They're instead of tricyclic, they're pentacyclic, just a little bit bigger, right? And they're also triterpenoid glycosides. So structurally they're similar, but the benefit of using licorice root is that it's slightly bigger molecular shape allows us to trap slightly more oxygen inside of each bubble. And so when we're talking about feeding oxygen to the roots, we can get a substantial increase in the overall amount of oxygen that's trapped in those slightly larger rings. Um, AKA when you shake the bottle, you'll see, hey, that foam is like the bubbles on that foam are pretty big. You know, they're a little bit bigger than what you might expect. But again, the, the bubbles and the foam and the ability for us to trap oxygen and deliver it to soil micropores is something that we're specifically trying to do. Um, because we want to deliver oxygen, we want to create the kind of structure. We also want to disperse some of these nutritional compounds across horizontally in the soil. This is where the saponin, the surfactant effect of the saponins actually comes in handy. Um, one really cool thing about the licorice roots too, and this is uh, a little freebie for you guys, is that licorice roots, the type of sugar, they're about 50, if you eat licorice roots, they're about 50 times sweeter than um, cane sugar. And the type of sugar, glycorrhizic acid uh, does feed beneficial fungi, specifically our buscular mycorrhizal fungi like glama species. What we've noticed and what it seems to be, and I would love you know, to get in touch with the research lab to further kind of validate this, but um, everything we've seen are that fun fungal populations, particularly glamas, they prefer licorice roots and the sugars that are produced by licorice roots as kind of a food source. They really go nuts for it and they can, um, they can establish quickly, you know, they can form relationships with plants and they get a lot more biologically active a lot more rapidly overall. So it's kind of cool how we're feeding the, the fungi with the licorice roots overall. At the same time, we have the surfactant property. You should reach out to Dr. Efron Cazares. He's been on, he was on the show not a couple of months, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he's a great guy to, to reach out for, to on that particular uh, point of research. He would definitely be, uh, be the guy. The one thing I did want to pop in and mention on the um, saponins is they're extremely fish lethal so yeah. if you're doing aquaponics never put them in an aquaponic system you will kill your fish i get at least a call every six months about that someone doing just that so don't yeah. do that yeah and kilaha saponins in particular chilean soap bark does actually have a recorded history of being used by uh you know native people specifically for that purpose they would uh, use it to hunt fish and they would you know effectively kill fish that way so um, yeah, you definitely don't want to introduce saponins into waterways. Don't give it to the fish. Um, the same properties, you know, for plants that are beneficial in the delivery of oxygen, it actually works against fish uh, in aquaponic systems. You're actually going to smother them out. You're going to choke them out. So don't do that to your fish. Yeah, don't a few drops for 10,000 gallons and they're dead. It's a very small amount it takes to kill them. Um, and same thing too in the northwest of the U.S. for during the salmon run, the natives would uh, uh, constant uh, collect uh, yucca root extract 
and squeeze that into uh, clay vessels and evaporate it down into a concentrate and then pour that in the river and have the rest of the village waiting downstream to collect all those fish. So great for your soil garden. Just don't put them in your aquaponic system. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> um, as did you have uh, uh, any other nutrient points you wanted to touch on that you think uh, uh, are you know commonly uh, you, you touched on manganese a little bit and that's something that you know if manganese is too low it can really hinder your THC and cannabinoid expression do you want to talk about that a little bit sure yeah yeah manganese um, is important for this process of splitting water apart this is really really phenomenal plants are crazy they have found a way to oxidize oxygen I mean oxygen is so reactive that it even gets its own chemical reference it oxidizes things, you know, it's sort of implied within the name. Plants, however, have figured out a way to get the last laugh because they've developed a system by which they can oxidize oxygen and say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, have you taste your own medicine. Uh, it's a remarkable feat, actually, if you really want to talk about the serious nuts and bolts. It's incredible how they're capable of splitting water up and basically generating a proton pump. Um, but this process is really, really important to generate the reduction power, meaning the hydrogen that then gets plugged into all of the terpenes and all of the cannabinoids. These are very high energy compounds. They're not very cheap to make. It's like when you go to the store, if you wanted, you know, if you're the plant and you wanna buy yourself a terpene or a cannabinoid, those are probably some of the most expensive items that that store has. You know, you're not gonna get your, you know, you know uh, budget items or anything like that in, in these pool of substances. They're not gonna be cheap. They're not gonna be very bud budget friendly. Um, and so the, the overall idea is that because it requires a large amount of energy um, to power the process of synthesizing these secondary metabolites, that there is this flow of water that has to be constantly maintained. And that flow of water with the right amount of manganese gets past this what's called oxygen evolution complex and the water is acted on in a certain way where it's split. And then the energy is released in the form of oxygen that's recombined to make molecular oxygen O2 Obviously, and that's how plants, everyone knows from kindergarten, plants breathe out oxygen and they breathe in carbon dioxide. The specific mechanism by, by which that occurs is actually through the splitting of water. Plants want to keep that hydrogen and they want to let go of the oxygen. And so they found a way to do that over time. And that hydrogen, once it builds up in sufficient stores, you know, in sufficient pools, it gets attached and distributed across the plant um, in the form of like sugars and organic acids and other such compounds um you know the plants need to access that and make the terpenes and cannabinoids so they take the sugars that they make they break those down into organic acids those organic acids get used to synthesize the precursors for the terpenes and the cannabinoids and then finally all the enzymes that finish assembling and tailoring and refining and doing all the finish work on these molecules kind of squeeze out the final molecules and all of the stuff does require energy. And again, that energy, uh, particularly in the mid to late stages of flowering, the energy availability of the plants is oftentimes limited by water metabolism. So you see if you're in like weeks three to five of flowering and your plants are drinking slowly, they're not drinking a lot of water, you, that's a bad recipe right there. Your plants are not going to be able to produce a lot of terpenes and cannabinoids. But on the flip side, if you have plants that are very productive, if they're uptaking a lot of water, and they're metabolizing a lot of water, you can be sure that the energy that's being gained from splitting of the water, that reduction power that's building up in the plant's bank account, 
will eventually be used to purchase high value compounds like terpenes and cannabinoids. These are the things that really come out in the mid to late stages of flowering. I personally am a big advocate of keeping potassium levels fairly high in the mid to late stages of bloom. If you can finish with a high potassium load with you know calcium in the mix too, maybe we could talk about that a little bit too. Calcium is very important too. Um, but potassium is really what they what might be perceived or called the quality element. And potassium is directly and fundamentally tied to transpiration rates in plants. So having the ability for your plants to transpire a lot of water will in turn allow for the biosynthesis of terpenes and cannabinoids in those mid to late stages of flowering. And obviously one of the questions for, well, how do I get my plants to, you know, drink more rapidly? Easiest answer is shine more light on them, you know, but the more complex answer is shine more light on them, give them more potassium, make sure the CO2 is right and everything else is balanced out and, and dialed in. But potassium is definitely a very, very, very important element in conjunction with some of these other, you know, elements that are not, not uh, talked about too frequently like manganese. Good, some questions from chat here. Um, we'll start to go through them here. Uh, would the licorice root powder be okay to use in the garden? What would you, what would be the average dose? Um, you could use licorice root powder. I think you would want to keep the doses fairly small. I mean, I think personally, if you wanted to give that a try, you should put a little bit in like a gallon jug and shake it up and, you know, get a decent amount of foam. Um, I'd say start off small, you know, start off with, you know, like maybe just a gram or two per gallon, you know, and just see, work your way up from there. Um, you certainly don't want to create any kind of weird adverse effects in the soil, but also, having said that, just using licorice root by itself probably isn't going to be enough to throw soil chemistry off in, in crazy amounts. But yeah, start small, maybe one or two grams, work your way up from there. If you end up with a teaspoon per gallon equivalent or a tablespoon per gallon equivalent, you know, as long as your plants like it and you understand how the chemistry in the soil is being affected by it, then um, I think it's one of those compounds that shouldn't really pose a problem. At least we haven't seen anything even with, you know, fairly high use rates. Um, but yeah. Yeah, hope that hope that answers the question. Another one. What is the strongest cause for silica coming out of suspension? Something about length of peptides. Oh my head, he says. What is the strongest cause for silica coming out of suspension? Something about length of peptides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, the so when you have silicon, um, orthosilicic acid. Think about silicon like when it's in solution. Silicon will snowball, meaning that it will eventually start to roll on top of other silicon. And as it rolls and continues to roll in solution, it's going to pick up more and more of these silicon uh, compounds. And this causes speciation. It causes the growth of your orthosilicic monomers, meaning you're like really low molecular weight. You go from monomer to polymer, meaning you have multiple of them starting to become attached. And the weird thing about silicon is that you get linear growth at first, meaning that you get this chain that's growing and it's only growing in one dimension. But at a certain point, this thing becomes a little bit awkwardly shaped and it, it starts to actually cyclize on itself. You get this three-dimensional rotation. And this is where silicate precipitation or, or silicon speciation can start to create insoluble precipitants. So 
again, the simple sort of, per, you know, perspective is that you start off with small units that eventually link up together and make a long chain. That chain eventually gets so long that it starts to create a ball. And that ball will attract other forms of silicon. And depending on the pH of the solution, you either get precipitation as a silicate salt and it forms flakes. Or if you're dealing with a low pH, you actually precipitate a colloid and you get a gel-like network. So if you're dealing with the orthosilicic acid products and those really fancy expensive ones, they'll probably dehydrate and turn into a gel. Whereas on the flip side, if you're just dealing with like a straight, you know, salt-based silicon, you're likely to end up with the silicate flakes and actually precipitating that way. The odd thing about silicon is that even if you have it in solution, good luck keeping it in solution. You know, the way that silicon speciates and forms relationships, it likes to maximize the bonds between silicon and oxygen. Um, you know, the, I think those are called siloxane groups as well. The silicon, oxygen, silicon. So obviously water, H2O, has oxygen inside of it. And silicon says, hey, buddy, let's go party. And so at a certain pH, regardless of whether it's low, like two, three, four, neutral, you know, five, six, seven, let's say up to seven, or even high up to about a pH of 10, you're going to have silicon doing this dance with oxygen in such a way that results in speciation. This is why silicon is not very stable. And this is why all the silicic acid products are as expensive as they are. Uh, with our potassium silicate, it's a high pH silicon because it affords the same type of stability. And again, keep in mind, orthosilicic acid is the exact same thing as hydrated silicon dioxide. So it is a true statement to say that you can have a high pH potassium silicate that has orthosilicic monomers inside of it. It behaves more or less like that depending on the pH range. But what we did was we took hydroxycitric acid out of hibiscus flowers. It's a beautiful plant, by the way. Uh, just as kind of a side note here, hibiscus is in the mallow family. There's about 4,500 plants in the mallow family and almost all of them are entirely edible in their raw or cooked forms. You can eat everything from the roots to the shoots, the flowers, stems, leaves, bark, anything you want raw or cooked. You can make it into a jam, you can make it into a tea, you can do whatever you want with it. So Mallows are definitely some of the best plants that humans are soft-wired for. Uh, some mallows you may not be familiar with are ones like chocolate, okra, and cotton, which is one of the, cotton I think is one of the very few ones that uh, you can't necessarily eat in its raw form, but it's I think one of two or three that is known about of close to 5,000. So humans are absolutely soft-wired for mallow plants, and hibiscus has been used as traditional medicine for over 6,000 years in Western Africa because it produces not only anthocyanins um, that are bioavailable to the brain and, and uh, very, very good for the brain and nervous system, but also these organic acids, they're a little bit rare in nature, like this hydroxycitric acid. We're using it because of the interaction between the hydroxycitric acid and the silicon. We're able to make uh, a low pH orthosilicic acid using the hydroxy citric acid from the silica or from the uh, hibiscus flowers so that as our silicon dehydrates in the soil it has the functional stability of silicic acid it will continue to release those monomers and it will not polymerize in the same way that a potassium silicate will uh, but we took a shortcut around having to have very expensive synthetic acids our silica skin is 100 compliant with nop standards the silicon is domestically produced and is derived from sand uh, and then the hibiscus flowers that we're using uh, come from a co-op that we work with directly. And that cooperative is growing hibiscus in a regenerative farm. There are no machines 
that touch that land. They don't even use machines to harvest or to do anything else. They go and they hand pick, they hand clean the hibiscus, they hand sort it, and we buy it. We're very fortunate to be able to support that type of agriculture. That's what I think is truly regenerative and truly sustainable. So, um, you know, that being said, we get a chance to work with farmers that populate thousands of acres. We get to make fertilizer and we get to grow more plants using the fertilizer that we got from the plants. Um, the other half of silica skin as well is, is horsetail and horsetail is very, very rich in silicon as well, uh, organosilicates. And, um, it's kind of uh, interesting in nature that, that, uh, horsetail has very few, if any, I don't think there are actually any known fungal pathogens for horsetail. I think it's one of those plants because it's a hyper accumulator of silicon. It's one of the best studied plants for how silicon interfaces with plants and their ability to defend against fungal disease pressures in particular. Horsetail is a badass plant. I love it. Horsetail is older than fungi, if memory serves me right, evolutionarily. Because fungi were, didn't count, they were evolved much later on. Actually, there was the whole thing with the big buildup of all the trees and all that, and to where a lot of our fuel comes from these days. Yeah, and horsetail plants used to be a lot larger. Equisetum arvense, the common horsetail, is the last known species in that genus. And these horsetail plants, you know, a couple hundred million years ago, they used to be a lot bigger. They used to be eight, nine, ten feet tall. Um, uh, yeah, and they are spore forming, so they're 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 different. They they are really really fat. I think they're still. I would consider them a plant, but they're fascinating plants in the sense that they're, you know, spore forming. Um, yeah, but you know, the the hibiscus. I, I think it's the organic acids that we're getting from. Yeah, yeah, that's. Looks like almost looks a little bit like bamboo too. There you go. Yeah. Anywhere there's more damp or wet soil, um, mm -hmm. you know, just it doesn't grow like particularly dry soils, but and it has a crazy invasive root system, like crazy tubers that'll. You're hard once it gets established it's hard to get rid of kind of like bamboo <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean i i really like horsetail it grows all over the place here in the pacific northwest you know i'm up here and uh our manufacturing plant is in arlington washington and i, I live in everett washington so uh, i love the scenery around here i just love how much greenery there is certainly the horsetail most people would consider to be a, a nuisance at times but i just look at that and i'm like man there are some miraculous compounds. I mean, if you think about how old that plant species is, it's got some old information stored inside of its DNA. And to be able to tap into that repository of information and to apply some of what's stored in that very ancient, you know, gene pool or the DNA pool uh, onto modern crops to help solve some modern challenges, I think that's the way to go. You know, and I could make that similar analogy to ginkgo biloba, which is one of the plants we're using to make resin bloom. Um, very, very old species of plant. With lactobacillus fermentation with uh, with uh, horsetail as well. Nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Fan of the lab ferments as well. That's awesome. Um, we had, uh, what else was it here? Um, would this product work well in earth boxes? What's an earth box? Um, they're like a small, um, uh, like wicking bed feeder or like a, a sips container kind of, hmm. or a bottom watering container. Yeah, I mean, 
it depends on how quickly that water can be applied and, and really, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of just living soils and using our products in a drain to waste system. Really, it's just about exposure time. Um, a lot of our products have very strong biological properties. You want to get those properties affected on the plants as soon as you can, as rapidly as you can. So this is their website, but it has kind of like a, a bottom layer to it. So the water is kind of at the very bottom and you mm -hmm. can water right to the bottom. So you're not watering the top of the soil. And usually you cover the soil with the, the wrap or whatever that goes on top. Quite popular. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think it just comes down to how long uh, that feed water would sit. You know, part of what we're doing is we're taking fully reduced carbon in excess. Like if you, you know, used our full product line and you got it dialed in, we could deliver more carbon to the plants than you would get from 3000 ppms of CO2 in the air. And volume aside, I'm just talking about concentration. You know, if you water a gallon onto your plants, let's just say hypothetically, they take up even one fluid ounce of that. The concentration of carbon inside of one fluid ounce to one gallon is still gonna be about the same. There's gonna be little to no change, roughly, not, not appreciable. Um, and so obviously when the plants get access to this uh, massive carbon load, they're capable of, we want to internalize that carbon on the inside on the transpiration stream of the plants um, to kind of, you know, back up one step. I mentioned earlier that roots produce organic acids in certain cases when they need to scavenge for elements like phosphorus, for instance, it's been shown across most plant species uh, and some do it better than others. Some, you know, secrete larger amounts of organic acids than others. I think wheatgrass is one of those that accumulates quite a bit, um, but they do produce organic acids to help deal with phosphorus limitations. Uh, yeah, yeah, we've got all kinds of cool, yeah, the, the foliar feed chart, light, medium, and heavy. The heavy feed chart will deliver the equivalent of, you know, more than 3000 PPMs of CO2 to the plants. Um, and, you know, most of that's gonna get uh, broken down across the full product line. You know, there's a couple of our products that are really, really good at delivering carbon, like the CalMag fuel, for instance, it's, you know, one, one milliliter per gallon of CalMag fuel is the same as 100 ppms of CO2 in the air, roughly. Got the same amount of carbon load coming in. And so if you're doing foliar sprays or if you're watering in through the roots, you know, you're basically giving your plants a shortcut. They would otherwise spend time and energy taking CO2 out of the air and making these same chelates that we're making for the plants. And so increasing the overall substrate pool of what's available for them uh, really can increase the throughput of their, you know, biosynthetic sort of the efficiency of some of these pathways overall, you know. You guys have uh, a lot of resources as well, a big FAQ, all the different uh, MSDS, right, really easy to get to, all the labels easy to get to, and a lot of companies, it's such a pain in the ass to find another one of those, and then also I like the fact that you do have the low, medium, and high for the feed charts, rather than a lot of people just have one, it's kind of nice having that. But yeah, it's really interesting to see you know, kind of the blend of the fermented plant tech and the, the mineral tech. Uh, I thought that was a, a really, really different um, direction and interesting kind of take on it because it kind of gives you that hyper availability. You want to talk a little bit about the importance of bioavailability and how um, that kind of stands out by combining those two? Yeah, yeah. And for us, it's uh, one degree further besides just being bioavailable for the plants. 
they're biologically relevant molecules for that pathway. So to kind of back up one step, you know, calcium nitrate might be considered bioavailable to the plants because it's soluble, meaning the plants can take it up. They transport the nitrate, there's enzymes that reduce those nitrates in the leaf surface. They borrow electrical energy from ferrodoxin. Basically they're tapping into the bank account and saying, hey, give me some you know, chemical currency so I can buy this nitrate and turn it into an amino acid basically. So, um, you know, plants do a lot of work to access some of these elements. And so even if you give them something that's bioavailable, you're still not solving that thermodynamic equilibrium problem. If you're in, in certain cases, if you're giving them nitrates, it's a good example. If they're oxidized, the plant has to deal with it and it has to deal with it by spending the chemical currency. So even if something is bioavailable, still requires energy expenditure. Our biologically relevant molecules require no energy expenditure to get processed by the plants. They will passively take them up and they will incorporate them immediately into these primary pools that actually grow larger and larger as the substrate pools begin to grow as well. Um, one of the easiest ways to visualize what I'm talking about is to perceive plants like motors. And when the lights are on, the motor is working. Light energy is coming in, you got reduction activity happening, and you have certain types of um, carbon compounds being exported along the way. You know, this is the citric acid cycle, for instance, being opened up and allowing a portion of that exudate to go towards uh, uh, like microbes and fungi in the soil, or if the plant needs to make an amino acid, the pool has to open up and allow for the export of some of that to be used as the substrate, you know, because the amine group has to have a terminal acceptor on the back end of it, and that has to come from somewhere. That is not a cyclic process, that's actually a linear process. So just like a car, when it's working, it's producing energy, and then there's an exhaust system that's carrying all this stuff away, you know, there's the flow of energy going into the plant. And what we're doing with these compounds that we're making is not so much just making them available for the plants to act on, but rather that we're making them available to get plugged directly into the pathways that then release a ton of energy into the plant. We're not drawing energy away from the plant. We're providing energy going into these systems that plants depend on. And these energy, sometimes the energy currencies are extremely specific. They're very hard to look at unless you know, for instance, how hydroxycitric acid might interconvert or interchange to 2-oxoglutarate, which is sort of a, a very important for the biosynthesis of amino acids. You know, you wouldn't really get this far into it unless you were looking specifically at the nuts and bolts of this type of operation. But again, the idea is like, hey, when plants are doing work, there's some types of work that take longer than other types of work. Let's find out what's taking the plant so long. And let's see if we can come in, maybe help it out a little bit here, help it out a little bit there, and start to shave 5 to 10% of that time by giving 10 to 20% more energy. And over time, we find that we can actually remove some of these bottlenecks entirely using natural substances that we're finding exist in other plants. You know, they are doing a really, really good job of reducing the stress that's otherwise associated. They're anti-stress compounds, you know, and by stress, I just mean strictly and purely from a thermodynamic perspective. This is energy flow through biological system. We're talking about stressing a you know, these organisms to actually perform a lot better. And one of the ways that I think uh, we can improve as a species is to not stress them, but to remove that stress and to provide the things that they're stressing out over, you know, they're stressing out because they need more substrates to produce more antimicrobial, antifungal, you know, uh, nutrient acquiring, microbe feeding, you know, types of compounds, like anything that a plant can and will do with carbon is ultimately what we want it to do with carbon. 
And the hard part has always been either from a conventional slash salt-based approach or a more traditional slash organic-based approach. How do you get around this problem of, you know, thermodynamic inefficiencies? How do you do the work for the plant? You know, in some cases, the on the organic side, people figured out a very long time ago that you employ the help of microbes. Um, so you pass the you pass the uh, you you split the heavy load and and that burden across a variety of organisms because they all end up performing better when they can kind of synergize with each other. You know, the tax is a little bit less overall than if you just have the plant in the mix with very little else and you just have, you know, salt-based fertilizers and stuff. Um, those are two fundamentally different systems. However, they both share a common problem, which is reduction power. It's still being demanded of the microbes, demanded of the fungi, and they in turn demand it from the plant. If legumes were not feeding rhizobia, the rhizobia would not have the synergistic relationship with the legumes, but because they're so efficient, energy efficient at, at their respective processes, it makes all the sense in the world to develop these relationships. Our products, we're trying to replicate that aspect, you know, do as nature is. We're trying to be like the microbes. We're running certain types of chemical reactions that are based on plant chemistries. We're extracting plants. We're not using any chemical solvents to extract the plants whatsoever. Uh, and by and large, you know, the formulations, uh, you know, for most of the products, you know, can, can be considered to be compliant with NOP standards. Um, you know, they are con considered as organic in some cases and in other cases, it's just, it's a matter of the regulators, um, kind of having to catch up with, you know, where the science is at nowadays, unfortunately, uh, as much as I don't like to. To say, I, I feel like oftentimes from a regulatory standpoint, it's very difficult for me to even be able to um, come and talk about these things because uh, it opens up this possible avenue of, you know, attack when in reality, all I'm trying to do is, you know, spread the word that there's plants out there that many people have not even heard of, let alone understand their benefits in agriculture that can do some pretty profound things when it comes to increasing nutrient density for your foods and vegetables, increasing the therapeutic qualities of medicinal crops like cannabis, uh, you know, and above and beyond, I mean, even lavender, for instance, you know, um, all kinds of crops that are very important for humans and have been for thousands of years. So, yeah. Super cool. We had uh, Travis asked, since hot flowers produce the most thiols, from what I understand, would adding hot flowers to top dressing add any thiols to my plants? You know, there are species of like, um, uh, boy, uh, uh hmm. cruciferous, <laughs> that's, that's what a cruciferous, uh, vegetables, you know, like broccoli is a really good one. It produces isothiocyanates and it produces sulfur rich compounds. Like onions are another really good example. Anything that's like an onion or garlic or in that, uh, in that family is going to produce a lot of reduced sulfur species. Now, typically when plants take up sulfate, most of that sulfate, the terminal reduction is the biosynthesis of cysteine. And then from cysteine, it goes to methionine and it goes to glutathione and, and so on and so forth. There are examples in certain plants and certainly garlic and onion and species like that, even broccoli and other brassicas, they start to do funky things with sulfur in the sense that they can start to attach just the sulfate groups 
in excess on top of sugars. And so you get these sulfated polysaccharides. This is also a phenomena that's found in uh, kelp species, sea plants like green lettuce, which we spoke of earlier. One of those pathways, again, for processing sulfur is just to take the sulfates, which don't, they're not going to get reduced chemically, but they get joined um, every so often. There's an active sort of residue on one of these polysaccharides that it'll just be kind of attached to. So, um, you know, to answer your question, uh, you, you wouldn't, the thiols themselves would likely get oxidized in the presence of oxygen. And so you'd have a, you know, degradation overall uh, in effect, because even for the thiol groups to remain functional in cysteine and more, uh, more accurately inside of uh, glutathione, those have to participate with the help of certain enzymes to keep those reduced and oxidized states within a certain, you know, type of parameter. If you introduce too much oxidative stress, you can effectively break the molecule, you can destroy it. Um, and so plants have to kind of balance out the amount of energy that they um, sequester, you know. And so all that being said, I don't think you you would be really looking to supplement thiol groups. Those thiol groups would, would oxidize in the soil, but you'd probably, you know, get some type of additional, you know, nutrient benefit, I would, I would guess, um, because if you can load that sulfur first into the microbes and they can start to process it, it may not require so much energy from, uh, you know, from the plants to reduce sulfur. Sulfur actually takes a lot of energy to reduce. Um, it costs one ATP, but there's a large energy input that goes into it. Um, and uh, there's even sulfate um, detoxification too. If you apply too much sulfur onto your plants, there is an enzyme in all plants called uh, sulfite oxidase. And its job is to pass oxidative energy back into sulfites to convert them back into sulfates and then wash them out of the plant. Because again, going back to this amino acid cysteine, um, plants are trying to balance the amount of carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur that they have in store in a reduced form. If they have too much reduced sulfur and your nitrogen to sulfur ratio starts to change, you can impact the biosynthesis of amino acids pretty significantly because not all of those amino acids contain sulfur and not all of them should contain sulfur. There are other amino acids whose usefulness is derived from things other than a thiol group being a functional component of an antioxidant. So to balance out the nitrogen versus sulfur ratio, I think is, you know, with respect to natural plant metabolism, you want to have those levels in check to allow the plant to maximize its possible expressions. So if you look out in nature, you'll see that even for some of these sulfur heavy crops, you're going to clock in around 10 to 1 nitrogen sulfur, maybe 15 to 1 now in cannabis, the ratio gets a little tighter, especially when we're talking about, you know, feeding a little bit of sulfur into the mid to late stages of flowering, which does help with the terpene biosynthesis, although maybe for reasons that people don't um, fully uh, appreciate. It does actually revolve around the functionality of thiol groups and antioxidant defense um, systems that are in place in the trichome heads specifically. Um, very large amounts of antioxidant defense enzymes, like the whole glutathione system, significantly outweighs the cannabinoid and terpene biosynthesis activities in trichome heads. In other words, you have more antioxidant activity happening in a trichome head than you do terpene and cannabinoid biosynthesis by a lot, not a small amount. It's a lot. Uh, and if you think it's, you know, it's because the trichome head is just so close to an environment that's rich in oxygen. And a lot of these um, uh, processes by which terpenes and cannabinoids are synthesized, the, it's such a high energy system that if you don't balance the energy flow properly, you get oxidative stress, you get stuff that's leaking out, you got a 
high oxygen, you know, environment, uh, relatively speaking, just because of the sugars and the organic acids obviously have oxygen and they're in the presence of light. So if you get light energy hitting that oxygen, it's going to generate reactive oxygen species. And so the plants are like, no way, dude, they produce antioxidants to help kind of curb that potential for oxidative stress. Um, and that's where it kind of comes back to sulfur and the thiol groups, you know, being functional there. So the same thing is true of hops because they have lupulin glands. And these lupulin glands are much like the trichomes in cannabis. And these lupulin glands uh, accumulate uh, what are called alpha and beta acids, primarily as alpha acids inside of hops. But they're very, very similar to, you know, terpenes and cannabinoids inside of cannabis plants. They're maybe a little bit different because, you know, more specifically, cannabinoids are terpenophenolic compounds. Uh, I do think in some cases, some of the metabolites produced by hops are also considerable as terpenophenolic compounds, although to, to what extent, I'm not 100% sure. Um, you know, hops, I'm not, uh, something I'm very interested in is, is a plant and very passionate about because our products work very, very well for it. Um, but yeah, it's a little bit different overall. So yeah, anyways, I hope that answered the question. Sure. Good uh, question. Should I ask, hey, is that what glutation is? Gutation, I think, is, yeah, the, um, it's like the release of, you know, sugar when your plants are growing, they, they secrete a little bit of a sucrose, like a little bit of a sap or sugar, um, it could be just excess sugar that's being squeezed out of the plants, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of reasons for why it can happen, I think, um, one of the things that it can do is it can reflect an environment for the plants where, in, in some ways, that's maybe ideal or optimized, you know, they, uh, can afford to lose that volume of sugar, that amount of sugar. It's sort of a freebie for them because typically, generally speaking, plants are very good mathematicians. They like to ration out down to the nearest molecule, their exact energy stores and what they were able to produce during the day. You know, when they have 25% of it going to the microbes and 20% going to the phenylpropanoid pathway and so much energy being for nitrates to be reduced and sulfate, like the plants aren't just passive and like, oh yeah, free sugar, whatever, you know, forget about it. They, they do these things um, with a remarkable degree of specificity. And in some cases, I think it's a little bit enigmatic because some of the healthiest plants I've ever, ever seen uh, just push out sugar, push out sap like that. Um, and I think that in some cases, there's a mechanical explanation for it probably. But then in other cases, I don't know, I've seen some stuff where I'm just like, you know, I don't know what's going on, but that plant looks like a million bucks. So I wouldn't worry about it at all. And certainly enough, you could basically spray powdery mildew on the leaves of some of these plants and they would not get infected. There's something referred to as the sweet immunity response. And it's basically the notion that the right types of sugars um, can induce defense responses in plants because the sugars themselves are the substrate by which that defense molecule is, is made out of anyways. And so it stands to reason that if you supplemented some of these compounds that there would be a connect connective tissue between you know the plant's ability to resist the stress and the building blocks to resist the stress absolutely um well uh i don't see too many other questions in chat here is there anything else you want to mention before we uh, wrap it up i did have one other topic i wanted to touch on for two seconds let me throw it up here um uh so there's a bill going through in Oklahoma right now, HB 4287. Call your legislature, and there's a link right there uh, to the how to find your whoever you are in Oklahoma, uh, and get this bill killed because they want to get rid of deli style cannabis. 
have it all prepackaged. They want to make minimum purchases as an eighth or more, which is going to really hurt a lot of people because it get, makes it more expensive for people to purchase stuff. Um, add way more packaging requirements that are just not needed uh, and, and a lot more. So it, it's a really a terrible bill and it needs to be killed because prepackaged weed is just how you know people hide their bunk garbage. Um, it's, it's totally not needed and you know it only hurts patients. I agree with that. Yeah, Oklahoma is pretty important as far as the cannabis industry goes <clears throat> overall. You know, I think it was a state that uh, got set up pretty well to just jump both feet in, you know, and then they've kind of done a really remarkable job over the past couple of years raising the bar um, for the quality of cannabis that's being produced. You know, I, I think that some people were kind of concerned initially about Oklahoma and uh, a large surplus of low quality cannabis. And I think what's happened on the flip side is based on what I've seen, at least, and I've been to Oklahoma several times over the past couple of years. It's one of my favorite places to go to. The people are always excellent to hang out with. It's such a great time. Um, but one of the things that I've seen by and large is that the pursuit of high quality cannabis is definitely real in Oklahoma. People are really taking that craft seriously. And for some of the guys that I've seen grow outdoors, at least, uh, I can tell you undoubtedly, if you can grow good cannabis in Oklahoma outdoors, you can grow good cannabis anywhere in the world outdoors. It's like one of the harder spots to get it right. You know? I, don't know. I, I think that it can be, it's certainly if you're not used to dealing with the heat and heat and humidity, like, yeah, you're totally effed. And if you don't understand healthy soil microbiology, yeah, you're going to pay for it quickly. I mean, that you see how many people still get totally annihilated by septoria for this reason, you know? Um, but you know, the uh, overproduction in Oklahoma has crashed the global, the, the countrywide price for black market cannabis. You know, it went, you know, that's the reason why prices have gotten so cheap for, for pounds is because of Oklahoma. So I know there's a lot of people kind of pissed off about it too. I definitely hear about it. <laughs> um, well, do you want to tell everybody how to find you and how they can find out more? In fact, uh, uh, one last thing I wanted to mention, I think you have it on your, uh, website here where is it no where is it um you have shoot is it under r&d i thought you had it there it is um you also have a podcast you do with hoda herbs um do you want to talk mm -hmm. about that for a second yeah yeah that's on thursdays clubhouse um we are live at 6 p.m pacific 8 p.m central 9 p.m eastern and we just pick a topic to go through every single week. Um, and lately what we've been doing is going through individual elements. So we spent an episode looking at sulfur and I did two hour discussion on sulfur and glutathione and the whole redox state and system of a plant. And we looked at amino acids, you know, in some level of detail, we looked at the specific ones, like certain ones, um, you know, like uh, asparagine that's produced when plants have access to a lot of nitrogen because that amino acid has the highest nitrogen to carbon ratio. And so it's a good nitrogen sink for plants that have access to excess nitrogen and want to make these amino acids that can store a lot of nitrogen. Other amino acids like proline we looked at have certain types of effects on helping plants deal with salt stress and balancing out their ability to retain water and soak it up like a sponge. And so, you know, amino acids by and large, if you just look at the individual ones, they seem to have these benefits for plants. And so we had a chance to go 
into you know detail for a couple hours and we've kind of done the same thing for most of the other elements we did one on calcium and magnesium last week was on phosphorus and then this up and coming thursday we're going to have a discussion about potassium which i think is one of my favorite elements it's one of those that is uh, so interesting in so many different ways um and if you look at our products every single product has potassium inside of it and that's that's a talking point i think for our product line because if you learn how to push your plants to the best highest state of productivity realize potassium is really important for everything from mediating relationships in the root hairs the meristematic tissue itself the way that potassium interfaces with microbes fungi and plants is uh instrumental to guiding those relationships and then on the flip side too on the plants perspective um, you know, dealing with water uptake, um, and things like that, you know, that revolves primarily around the amount of potassium that's loaded into the plants, but by and large potassium has a larger effect on carbon metabolism than any other element. And so being able to look at that in relation to carbon accumulation in plants is really, really important. So you, you may look at our full product line and say, oh, wow, they've got a lot of potassium, but at the end of the day, it's because we're pushing so much carbon into the plants that that carbon has to be charge balanced somehow. And it turns out that in nature, if you look at plants, potassium is the cation that manages that. It's like the great regulator of the charge balance in the plants and carbon metabolism. So um, for those of you who want to check it out, feel free. And then also definitely give us a follow on Instagram, the rooted leaf. We've got, uh, you know, several hundred posts that are all pretty detailed. Um, you know, about the plants we're working with. Oh, hey, if you scroll up real quick on that left-hand side, you'll see what appears to be chocolate mousse. That's actually the wall of foam. If you scroll maybe a little bit more, you'll see it. It's going to be there. We go the picture on the left-hand side. Yeah, it looks like chocolate mousse. Um, that's the uh, surfactant that comes out of our licorice root when it's actually infused. And that's like a 10 to 12 inch wall of foam. Um, it's so, so beautiful. I freaking love Root Anchor Man every time it's made. It's, it's, uh, there's the whole licorice roots that we use. Um, so, and there's some real results. The, um, those plants were exactly 21 days old from seed. Interestingly enough, they were germinated. And then 21 days later, they had root systems like that really thick mop head. You know, they have the fish bone style ribs coming out that adventitious growth. You can see the fungal hyphae just starting to explode. It's remarkable considering that plant is literally 21 days old. Um, so, and I think that was a uh, pimp slap perps or, or orange octane or orangutan titties or something like that. <laughs> One of those crazy exotic names, but uh, yeah, we've got so much, you know, good information um, about the saponins, about every plant that we're working with, sage, you know, licorice, got information on kelp, all that stuff. We just, you know, there's the the lavender. Um, we, we actually did pheno hunt a bunch of lavender. Um, oh, there's the juniper berries right there. We start off with whole juniper as well. But in one of the other posts, you can actually see there's a, there's another picture of lavender and we actually did some pheno hunting for the lavender. Maybe it's a little bit you know further up, but um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, definitely give us a follow on Instagram. Check out the clubhouse if you'd like. Um, you know, Thursdays we're doing that. And then uh, if you guys have questions, feel free to reach out to us. You can check out our website, rootedleaf.com, get in touch with us that way. Or if you want to send us a message, 
uh, <clears throat> on Instagram, you know, I'm usually the person that's on the other end <clears throat> of the keyboard. So I love to chat about the stuff and I like to help educate people a little bit more, you know, advanced uh, cultivation aspects equally as traditional farming techniques. I feel like a lot of the plants that we work with possess compounds a lot of people are not familiar with or aware of. So I like to open up the conversation in both regards. You know, if you want to learn it at a more mechanical and nuts and bolts type level, or if you want to take a slightly more esoteric approach, we have a pretty good balance of the both of them across the, the product line. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, do you, again, uh, what's your uh, Instagram and your website? I'll throw that back up on the screen. Uh, Instagram is the rooted leaf, and then our website is rootedleaf.com. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I always enjoy listening to your show. Uh, usually, after we record mine, I'll put on uh, you guys' show or I'll put it on on Friday and listen to your show as well. So, I enjoy listening to your guys' content. Well, I appreciate that a lot. And uh, thanks for having me on. It's great to sit down and chat with you. And I hope that uh, everyone that was listening, um, you know, got some good information and uh, feel free to reach out if you guys want to keep talking or chat about anything else. I really appreciate it. Uh, and then uh, if you guys are interested uh, next weekend, uh, the 25th, 26th and 27th, uh, I'll be up in Maine uh, for the uh, Science of Regenerative Cannabis Conference. Um, with Dutch Blooms, we got Eric Branstead, Joshua Steensland, who in my opinion is one of the, the most experienced large-scale growers out there, uh, Dr. Lane Ingham, uh, myself, um, Susan Wainwright-Evans, uh, Chris Trump, um, uh, Izzy Baker, uh, Ganja Rebel, uh, Dan Pomerian, uh, Kevin Jodry, uh, and then we have a big seed swap uh, on Sunday as well. Uh, with a whole bunch of local breeders. We got Chadwick Rose, Woodstock, uh, Farmec, uh, Skunkfoot uh, Farms, and Weaving Genetics. And we'll have some other people there as well. Uh, uh, so if you're looking for seeds, we have a super awesome seed swap and uh, be a really fun event. It's about two, three hours from Boston. So if you guys are in the Northeast, please come out and uh, support the community. Um, we put a lot of time and effort into this event uh, and uh, we really enjoy it if we could see you guys. Um, we always hang out afterwards, have all kinds of cool parties and bar runs and fun stuff like that. So it's good times. And you can also find us, Marty and I, over apmdayclass.com. We have a full-length uh, aquaponic cannabis class uh, where you can um, learn all about commercial and home-scale aquaponic cannabis, min-maxing your nutrients, uh, disease guides, pest guides, um, uh, design work, and a whole bunch more. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, and two live sessions each month so that you can uh, stay current with the latest uh, on those topics. So uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, thanks a lot to the Rooted Leaf for joining us this evening as well. Uh, always a pleasure to have him on and educating us all about uh, plant nutrients. Uh, and um, if you're interested in the uh, website for the cannabis conference, you can just type in regenerativeorganiccannabis.com. We'll take you to the website for that. Someone asked in chat. You can find my show, Potent Ponics, on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, all the things. Uh, and we'll catch you guys on Thursday. Thursday is the six-year anniversary for our show. Uh, and actually, shout out to Mr. Green. Uh, got some love. Uh, and uh, got some nice green from Mr. Green. Um, and uh, he will be with us uh, on Thursday. So along with a whole bunch of uh, previous panelists and a whole bunch of other cool things. So 